0: Welcome to the L&D podcast with your host Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast is sponsored by Think Learning, specialists in learning and performance technologies. Visit thinklearning.com to find out more. Hello
1: and welcome to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day and today I am delighted to be joined by futurist and global nomad Mike Walsh who has synthesized years of research and interviews With some of the world's top business leaders, AI pioneers and data scientists into a set of 10 principles about what it takes to succeed in the algorithmic age. His book, The Algorithmic Leader offers a hopeful and practical guide for leaders of all types and organizations of all sizes to help them to survive and thrive in this era of unprecedented change. And this is something we're going to be learning much more about during the course of this podcast. Now, as Mike rightly points out in his book, we are living in an age of wonder. We have cars that drive themselves, devices that anticipate all of our needs and robots capable of everything from advanced manufacturing to complex surgery. For those of you who listen regularly to this podcast, you will already know that we like to analyze the impacts of technology and how it may affect HR or L&D productivity. So it really delights me to be able to sit down and discuss automation and the future of work with such an industry expert. Mike's clients include many of the Global Fortune 500, and he is a sought-after keynote speaker who regularly shares this stage with world leaders and business icons alike. He's delivered nearly 1,000 keynote speeches around the world, and his best-selling book, Futuretainment, published by Fiden, was the winner of the Design Award by the Art Directors Club in New York. Each week, Mike interviews provocative thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers on his very own podcast, which is called Between Worlds, and I will put a link in the episode notes for those interested. So I'm superly delighted to be able to welcome such an experienced professional to this podcast. His newest book, The Algorithmic Leader, which we're going to be talking a lot about during the course of this episode, presents a pragmatic guide for future leaders, and it's based on many of the fascinating people Mike has met and interacted with over the years, from Jack Ma, who's founder of Alibaba to Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, as well as the next generation of entrepreneurs whose companies may end up shaping the future of the world we live in. So without further ado, welcome Mike Walsh. I'm very excited. Super excited to have you here. We're (laughs) going to jump straight into the questions. We've got so much to get through. I don't want our listeners to miss a beat.
0: L&D Podcast Discovery, questions to set the scene.
1: First, let's find out a little bit more about the 10 principles that you believe every leader needs to know in order to survive and thrive in what you've termed in your book, the algorithmic age, which of course is fundamentally what your book is all about. It's related to leadership as well. Before we delve into the book, though, and its findings, I wondered if you could just give us a very brief overview of your journey, Mike, to date that that basically brought you to this point.
2: It has been anything but a straight one. Uh, (laughs) I've uh, I've, I've been a jack of many trades. Look, I the start of the story is I'm really a failed lawyer. I, 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 try, I, I, I trained as an accountant and a lawyer originally many years ago, but in the late nineties, the most interesting thing that was going on in the world was definitely not accounting or law. It was the internet. So sure. I, I abandoned a, a career in professional services. I started an internet company and I really never had a normal job after that. So I spent, uh, you know, a good part of uh, my twenties, uh, in the, in the, in the very early digital world. Uh, and then I worked in um, big media companies uh, across China, Japan, and Korea. And, you know, really, if you think about it, in the early 2000s, although we like to imagine the iPhone was the beginning of the smartphone uh, revolution, sure. for many years, what was going on in Asia was extraordinary. They had a lot of these technologies. And it was that experience that really led me on the path that I'm on today, where I started to track globally these emerging technologies, these new things that consumers and companies were doing, uh, the birth of the whole sort of startup generation, and really to where we are today, which is, you know, beyond the digital revolution to the beginnings of an AI and algorithmic one, which is a story which I've noticed is not so much about the small companies anymore. It's about the big traditional conservative companies reinventing themselves.
1: Yeah. What's really interesting with with our leaders is we deal with payroll and HR listeners predominantly, and they are well in the deep of of data. They're they're very data-focused professions, particularly payroll. So what advice would you give to leaders who want to harness the power of AI and then, I guess, succeed where perhaps others have failed?
2: Well, it's important to remember that AI and automation are related, but they're not the same thing. So often people talk about AI but what they're really saying is that they're automating an existing process. Okay. And look, automation is very important, particularly in HR and, and payroll. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to take routine, everyday, data-driven activities and to put some intelligence and uh, essentially automation behind it. But that's really just the start of the story. Uh, because the, the best advice I can give any leader of, of any organization of any size is your starting point is not about digitizing a process you've got to ask yourself how do we make decisions what are the kinds of decisions that we make and where can we best apply machine intelligence to those decisions if you think about it a company is just a collection of decisions but there are different kinds of decisions so there's you know first second and third order decisions first order decisions are very easily definable uh, they're an existing process people have done it a thousand times before it could be you know uh many aspects of payroll could be included in this uh but it's it's where you're seeing robotic process automation now uh, playing a bigger and bigger role but then you've got these second order decisions you know which are still influenced by data uh but require human beings to take an important a uh, role so this could be you know what what is the right amount of money to pay someone in in this particular category um how do we you know how do we set our remuneration policies and this is where that we're going to start to see things like deep learning and machine learning, uh, where there's lots of data available. We will train algorithms to make recommendations, but you still need a human being eyeballing and going, yeah, that, that, that seems like a good thing to do. And in that way, you're, the human being is actually training the machines to get better with time. But then you've got third order decisions, which are much more complex, much more sophisticated. Uh, it could be a question like, what is, what is the kind of capabilities or talent we're likely to need in the next few years to make our transformation more successful? And this is something that no machine's ever going to really be able to answer for us.
1: I think that's going to be music to the ears of many of these senior payroll and HR professionals that listen to this podcast because it is a it is something RPA is something that certainly worries them. Um I've I've done a few podcasts yeah. in the past that talks about, in my view, and, and you're obviously much more of an expert than I am, but RPA is going to automate a lot of the tasks within jobs, but not necessarily for all professions themselves. But um, obviously, as an expert, we've got automation algorithms and AI. It's clearly going to transform every facet of our daily lives, in, in, regardless of what profession that you're working in. Do you think that the professionals within payroll and HR, and wider context as well, are really prepared for what that means for the future of work, and particularly how that may affect things like leadership and, and creativity?
2: Uh, I don't think we've, we have fully prepared ourselves for that, uh, not only structurally or through through enumeration, but but even just, you know, through imagination. And and that's because at the moment we're still very fearful of anything that encroaches in our day-to-day activities, of what we constitute our jobs. Sure. But we should actually embrace these technologies because by automating the routine, uh, deterministic, obvious tasks that we have on our plate, which let's face it, we never really enjoy doing. <laughs> no, sure. Uh, we we're actually freeing ourselves up to do much more meaningful uh cognitive interesting creative work and problem solving and longer term this will mean that we will be more valued by the organization we'll be seen as more strategic and and ultimately if you talk to anyone in HR that's really the the holy grail which is to be getting to to actually achieve the the rightful place in the organization as the custodians and the developers of talent which is really you know where a company's competitive advantage
1: is sure sure and you know i guess everyone every leader within hr and or payroll are seeking to i guess improve their roles to, keep, to be more strategic rather than operational if they can have a genuine impact at board level and, and really shape the a, a, a business from a strategic point of view then that's that as you mentioned is kind of like the holy grail and i automation in my view can certainly help that and certainly that's something that um it, I'm hearing from yourself is something they can do. It's a really hot topic, I know, at the moment within both industries. Um, There are certain studies, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that have been released. There was one recently by the BBC that talked about payroll, for example, being one of the most likely jobs that will be replaced by robots. I think they had the percentage as high as 90%. Mm. I mentioned earlier that my understanding is much more that the tasks within roles will be automated rather than the jobs themselves. But that's my opinion, and I'm far from an expert. So I'd really love to get an expert view on on how you see those kinds of studies what should we be taking from them? And should, while there are lots of benefits in terms of us being able to focus more of our time on the strategic tasks as a result of automation, are there also elements of automation we should be fearful of? Well, let me tackle the
2: last part first, which sure. is uh, I, th- I think one of the biggest risks of any kind of automation or any use of algorithms and data is that we end up just uh, either crystallizing a broken process or we bake in prejudices and bias that we haven't fully interrogated. And that's incredibly dangerous because you, you're taking something which is essentially broken or flawed and then you're scaling it up and you're, you're speeding it up. <laughs> and so, so that, that is something we definitely have to be on guard on. But if you're someone who is working in a category that people are saying is under threat from automation, I, I would say, you should absolutely embrace that. In fact, you should be the one in the organization that's leading the charge to undermine your own job. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the reason for that is, is that if you can demonstrate by leveraging technology, you can bring more efficiency and productivity to a particular area. Actually, you, that is your new job. Your job is not keeping payroll in, you know, in medieval times. Your job is actually being the catalyst for the transformation of that function. So you're actually just moving up a level of abstraction. And, and what you're demonstrating to the rest of the organization is that the title doesn't really matter. There's always going to be an opportunity to reimagine, to transform, to change a process as we get more technology and more data and more intelligence. But that is the real value that you bring to the organization, not the, the performance of a transactional activity.
1: I absolutely love that response. <laughs> um, so going back to the second part then, which is the first part of the question, but the second element to it, you talked about, I guess, the, the fearful side of automation. We should embrace it. And that's it, a good, good news to say that, you know, they can take the role in transforming that and titles don't matter. But are there other elements of automation? I read in your book about you know, potential for the super rich and there are other elements in that it's obviously quite complex and quite detailed. Well, I'll put some links to your book for those that want to, to find out more. But are there other elements we should be fearful of?
2: The real danger, and I would say it's bigger than automation, the real danger with any kind of system that we build to automate or to um, make decisions on our behalf is that we lose the capacity to completely understand how it operates and this you know some people are talking about making AI more accountable yeah um, but it's a bit of a it's a bit of a paradox because part of the magic behind some of these machine learning Algorithms is the fact that we can 't understand them because if we could understand them, we could design a deterministic system like a traditional programming, if then that would service our needs, but sometimes you know the situation is so complex there are so many variables we as human beings simply can 't see the complex interrelationships between one thing and another. It could be you know why is it that salespeople that come from this particular school and and, and with these particular um, things that they have studied end up being so long-term productive within an organization. We, We can guess at it, but sometimes a machine will see patterns that we can't. So all we can do sometimes is not understand the machine. We can just make sure that we understand the things the machine's been optimized around. And the idea of understanding optimums is actually going to be one of the new skills that I think leaders in the organization will be ha- absolutely accountable on. Uh, they won't have to explain the programming, but they will have to defend themselves to the board, to the investors, maybe even to regulators at some point, that the assumptions that they've set up in, in, the, in the algorithms that drive decisions in their company um, have been properly scrutinized and thought about.
1: Great. Right. So we've talked a lot about automation so far. Obviously, we've touched upon AI as well. You've just mentioned there about some of the decision-making processes involved for people not to lose sight of those. You've got to make sure that you are, I guess, testing the integrity of the base that you're setting up and then the automated processes that you're setting up, particularly true for payroll and HR, which are very compliance-driven where legislation is changing all the time. How, in your view, will artificial intelligence or AI, um, for short, how how do you think that's going to affect smart decision-making going forward?
2: the idea of what what is a smart decision is a is a more complex uh, topic than than you might think and part of it has to do with i guess our sense of ego when we achieve positions of seniority we feel that we have earned the right to make the big decision and that everyone has to fall in line with us and so what makes a decision smart is just because it's a senior person who's made it but actually in a in a data driven algorithmic ai age everything gets turned upside down because actually sometimes the smartest decision to make is to not make a decision at all it's actually to to actually design and train a model to make those decisions for you on an ongoing basis you actually can add more value by automating a decision making activity rather than making a bunch of decisions that are not as strategic as we might like to believe sure but for the for the decisions that remain, the ones that cannot be addressed, you know, with machines, those actually become more valuable, more difficult, more strategic because, because of the fact that they cannot be automated. And for those ones, we really need two sets of skills. We need to encourage and train people to be, um, you know, more nonlinear, more creative, to be more cognizant of uncertainty and ambiguity. Um, so, uh, there's a, it's what we call probabilistic thinking. And, and, and we struggle with that, I think, as leaders, because we're taught to believe that things are black and white, but actually sometimes things are, are gray. You know, a decision can be 70% right. And what you want to do is rather than try to be right, you want to be less wrong with time. So as more information comes in and as you collect more data, you can update the probabilities of something happening. Uh, I don't recommend trying this with something like Brexit. <laughs> no, <laughs> <But> fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would test any probabilistic sure. <laughs> model. But 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 that kind of mentality, which is still quite unusual in organisations, is exactly the kind of mindset um, that you need in terms of creative problem solving. But the other side of being a smart decision maker is knowing how to leverage technology, data, and, and AI to augment your process. So what you're really doing is splitting a decision into half, strategy and execution. Strategy is how do we approach the problem? How do we break it up? How do we look at it in creative ways? And execution is, you know, if I was to automate the solution to this answer, what does that look like?
1: I'm listening intently here. I'm taking notes. It's a, it's, a, it's a learning experience for me. I love the way that you put it. and It, it shows as well. It's interesting because we, we can't always predict the futures as humans, and sometimes we make decisions based on just on peerage, that just on the basis that, Someone is more senior and that's their role. But actually, you know, AI can make intelligent decisions that can sometimes assess the probability of something happening because it's based on raw data. But doesn't, they don't have that the same level yeah. of intuition. So it's an interesting divide. I love the way that, um, you know, all the answers you're giving at the moment lends itself to people taking a more strategic approach to the way that they are utilizing technology. Well, data is data is the great leveler.
2: Um, e- even if you're coming up in the organization, you want to challenge a traditional belief. Um, there was this guy called Jim Barksdale. You might remember him. He was one of the original founders of Netscape. Right. And he said something that I love. He said, look, if we have data, let's look at the data. If all we have are opinions, let's just go with mine. <laughs> love that. Love that. Very clever. <laughs> and, very clever. And so, you know, when, when you look at very successful algorithmic organizations like Amazon, for example. Their real success, I believe, stems a lot from the fact that they have not just invested in technology and data and automation, they've changed the way they make decisions inside the organization. So, you know, a very basic but powerful example of this is they've banned PowerPoint. So, if you want to get a decision made, you can't come with a 300 page PowerPoint deck with a bunch of graphs that don't mean anything and try to bore people into submission. You've actually got to go in with a six-page memo and a stack of data. So people spend the first 20 minutes of every meeting in silence because they're reading through the memo, which is very structured. And then they go point by point to look whether the data supports the hypotheses in the memo and whether the hypotheses support the overall goal of maximizing the experience for the customer. So, in a way, they've weaponized data in their organization to change the way that they view and frame opportunities
1: and and it's working for them clearly because they've grown exponentially, I guess since they've started using some of these methods absolutely, and they do things that
2: are often very counterintuitive or you know the market doesn't understand initially it's because they're able to they're able to challenge even internally uh what's considered you know the the decisions based on experience or wisdom or convention
1: So obviously I'm a recruiter at heart that's 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 my last 17 years of experience prior to podcasting from a, uh, an employment perspective if you're able to summarize I guess it's, it's a big topic here to summarize shortly so I appreciate this may or may not be possible but how how do you think AI ultimately is going to change people's jobs if we were to fast forward even in the short term because technology is moving so fast so fast forward 12 to 24 months how are we going to see AI change people's jobs in the short term?
2: Well, pretty much any job, any job title, um, will be changed by simply adding computation to the, you know, to, to, to the start of it. So the question is, um, is not what will a lawyer be like in the future? The question is, what will a computational lawyer be like? Uh, what will, who, what is a What is a computational auditor? What is a computational HR specialist? And, and, and what that question really asks is if you were to take that function today, and you are able to leverage automation to take away the transactional elements of that work then what remains is a combination of you know human ingenuity perspective context empathy plus the augmentation that comes with leveraging data and machine intelligence and the individual i think is very empowered uh they're able to t- challenge to tackle much more complex problems in a much more scaled scaled up way, but it does require a potentially a very different skill set and mindset.
1: Do you think I'm just listening to that? The answer to that question, and I wholly agree because that's obviously the way we're going. But do you think, you know, historically we've talked about financial divides, uh, working middle upper classes, so to speak, just to put it clearly. Do you think going forward, then, we're going be at risk of there being more of an intellectual divide as more AI technology comes in, in the sense that those that maybe work hard as the hard workers that get themselves to the top through brawn and sweat may actually struggle more in a computational age because it does come down to more of the people that have a more natural ability to be intuitive and maybe take a more patient strategic approach. They may not have the same hard work ethic, but they are smarter for want of a better word. Do you think there's going to be more of a divide as a result of this technology? It's
2: a it's a complex question. I I mean, I I think there will be a divide, but not for that reason. Uh, There'll be a transition period, definitely. I mean, even in the computer age, it wasn't that computers took away jobs from people. People with computers took away jobs from people who were unable or unwilling to use computers. And and I think we're going to see something similar here, that AI is not going to take work away from people. People who can leverage AI will be more competitive in the workforce than those that are unable to make the migration. But longer term, absolutely, there could be sources of inequality uh built in this revolution but they're 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 different and i think it has to do with your relationship with algorithms so there's going to be a a very large percentage of the population who end up working for an algorithm and you know if you're an uber driver today this is actually your life you're not working for humans you're working for code and it's not a great place to be because the algorithms are merciless they are watching you they're watching your behaviors they're using even complex psychology and incentives to motivate you. And, um, uh, and it's not a, it's not really somewhere that I think you can necessarily maximize your, your earnings. Then you've got a very small percentage of the population, a new professional class that will be working on the algorithm. So these are people that are capable, smart or experienced enough to be able to work on a lot of these systems that are then managing other people. Then you've got this tiny percentage—I mean, you know, point zero zero one percent of the population—that are wealthy enough to own the algorithms, and you know this is going to be a new aristocratic class far beyond anything that we've seen in terms of wealth. And the danger of all of this, I think, is that it's—if we get this wrong—it's—it's it's a, a recipe for social unrest and revolution.
1: Wow. I've never even considered Uber in that in that way before, but it makes absolute sense. What a fantastic way of putting it! So thank you so much. I'm a-
2: the only good news if you're an Uber driver is that uh, you, you'll eventually lose that job too when they bring it safe.
1: Yeah, yeah, nicely put. Yeah, for sure. But we're going to find out <laughs> a bit more about you. There's a lot for lot the listeners to take in here. It certainly is for me. I'm taking extensive notes. And I hope uh, the beauty of a podcast is you can, if you've missed anything, please re-listen to it, rewind and play it again. But I'm really excited that as part of this podcast, Mike has very kindly offered to give our listeners the opportunity to win a personalized signed copy of his latest book, The Algorithmic Leader, uh, How to Be Smart When Machines Are Smarter Than You. Uh, Mike will literally sign and post this book to the winner himself so uh, please do enter all you need to do to enter the competition is email myself I'll put the email in the episode notes which is nick at jgarecruitment.com with the answer to the following question if Mike was to have any superpower what would it be now here's a little clue keep listening to the podcast because we are just about to find out so I'll give that question again if Mike had any superpower what would it be so let's find out a bit more about yourself
0: Mike Time to find out more about you.
1: First, how would your friends describe you?
2: <laughs> well, they so rarely see me these days, so I'm not. I think they might struggle with that. I, I'm traveling almost 300 wow, days a year, wow. so it's uh, maybe invisible. invisible. Okay,
1: no, I'll take that. That's cool. <laughs> what is your proudest achievement to date? I, I think for me,
2: the my proudest achievement was not. Being able to not have a job for so long. Okay,
1: okay, Fair enough. <laughs> Who motivates you and why? I'm
2: very motivated by uh, my my where? family, uh, my wife, and uh, and uh, the, my extended family because you know I I, th- I think ultimately that's what gives context and meaning to the yeah, work fully we agree,
1: do. Fully agree. What did you want to be when you were a child? A movie producer. And where did that change or how? Did-
2: I didn't. I didn't exactly know what it was, but it seemed to be the person's name that was consistently on everything, and they seemed to be having the most fun. That's so. Makes
1: sense. Well, no has <laughs> has come come to you all in a different way, so uh, you've still got your name on those things, which is great. But there's lots of questions still to get through.
0: Einstein famously said that Insanity was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We believe it's time to try a new approach to recruitment. JGA Recruitment specialise in recruiting the top 15% of payroll and HR talent using innovative 24-7 attraction strategies that are proven to improve quality of hire, candidate retention and return on investment. De-risk your recruitment process today and hire better talent faster with JGA Recruitment. Visit jgarecruitment.com find out more the LD podcast final questions to help listeners engage learn and perform
1: but there's lots of questions still to get through. Uh, and more importantly, I'm really keen to delve into your book, um, which obviously talks a lot about your new leadership model as well. So could you give us a little bit more insight into what this is and also tell us a little bit more about the 10 principles that you believe every leader needs to know in order to survive and thrive in the algorithmic age?
2: Absolutely. So essentially, um, what I set up in my book is the difference between the analog era leader and the algorithmic leader. The Analog leader is really the kinds of leaders that we uh, we held up and, and revered in the past, and these were appropriate in a time when you know the markets were less turbulent, technology was less you know was more predictable, and we had the sort of the time to make long budgeting plans and long range strategy. And the analog leader was very much based on those you know those principles of hard work, effort uh charisma um ego experience and 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 we think of them like you know Jack Welch uh or sure. Steve Ballmer you know people that we held up as sort of icons of the late 80s and the early 90s but the problem is is that we don't live in that world anymore we live in a world that's complex that's nuanced in which there are rapidly changing technologies disruptive business models and in that environment as well where we You know where there isn't a hierarchy of information, information's everywhere. We're we're data-driven, and so someone who's even very junior in an organisation has the access to make, you know, to data to make a smart decision that is potentially more meaningful than someone who's sitting in the big corner office. So what I think that ultimately means is we need a new type of leader. We need a leader who's comfortable not only working in in an environment of real-time information, they're comfortable working alongside machines that are going to be part of the cognitive decision-making process. These are algorithmic leaders. Um, They are absolutely human. Um, They bring to the table the best of human qualities of empathy and understanding and context, but they also are able to leverage machine-like qualities of computational thinking, the ability to take structured approaches to problems, uh, to break them down, to make decisions in a way that leverages data. So, you know, when you think about it, this is the difference between, um, Satya Nadella, the current CEO of Microsoft versus Steve Ballmer. This is the difference between Jeff Bezos versus Jack Welch, um, Reed Hastings, who runs Netflix, uh, versus, you know, an, an old school media sure. tycoon. Um, so, so that's really the, the dynamic that I was trying to set up in my book. And it was really based on a number of fascinating leaders that I've met over the last, you know, five years and, uh, people that are not necessarily are young they, they could have been older leaders but they could have come from even traditional organizations but at some point they made the conscious decision to basically transform the way they did things, uh, to change their teams, to change their organizations and to realize that in a in a complex world it required a more uh, nuanced approach to to leadership. So I bought I, brought, I brought that down into 10 principles. I'm having to look at my book now to remind myself what they are. (laughs) Um, They were, uh, number one, work backward from the future. Number two, aim for 10x, not 10%. Number three, think computationally. Number four, embrace uncertainty. Number five, make culture your operating system. Number six, don't work, design work. Uh, Seven, automate and elevate. Eight, if the answer is X, ask why. Nine, when in doubt, ask a human. And number 10, solve for purpose, not just Fantastic. profit.
1: Great. I love that last one. Well, there's a few in there I loved as well, but the last one's brilliant. That's quite interesting when you mentioned some of those leaders as well. Clearly, the leaders you mentioned, you mentioned it, it's not an age-based thing. It's actually sounds like it's the leaders that have been willing to be flexible, to ch- you know, willing to embrace change and transformation, uh, willing to be malleable to the technology that, that, that's, that's being introduced, as opposed to those that are steadfast in what worked. Initially still works now are, are those that have been successful. Um, and I think you know everyone needs to be flexible in today's age to new technologies coming in and to, to changes in approach if you want to continually innovate and improve. For, from your perspective, if you were able to summarize what an algorithmic leader was or is, how would you summarize that?
2: Well, the, the bottom line for me with an algorithmic leader is you know someone who is, as you say, made that decision to um, adapt the way they make decisions, the way and the style of management, and even their approach to creativity, to the complexities of a machine age. So it, it isn't any one thing, but the key word here is adaption. Um, and once you realize that we are now operating in a new environment that requires a different approach to problem-solving and decision-making, the question that an algorithmic leader asks, and not just once, continuously in their career, is what's the new and smarter way of doing this?
1: So presumably, algorithmic leadership is going to be important then for every company, including those outside of the software and technology industries. This is going to impact all industry, all sectors globally. Yeah.
2: You know, you don't have to be an algorithmic organization to need to be an algorithmic leader. Um, You know, I one of the examples I give in the book is that you could actually even be running a dry cleaning. Okay. Business in Brooklyn and, um, and, and actually strange enough, even for small to medium enterprises, this is actually more important because competition in those areas is often more cutthroat. It's more dynamic. You're, you're literally your, your life and business is on the line. So you, what you need to be asking yourself is, is there a smarter, more effective, efficient way of leveraging technology to do this work better? Because it directly goes to certainly, your bottom we line.
1: We are one of those uh, SMEs in recruitment, and certainly it's a very competitive industry. And we've invested more in the last two months, I think, in technology and innovation than we've ever done in probably in the last 10 years of being in business. So it, it, that gives an indication to us, both in terms of how fast it's moving, but also that if we don't move with the times, we'll get left behind as well in, in order to be competitive and well, you know, part
2: of the trap though is is that we're often sold um, the dream of transformation by technology vendors. They'll say, look, if you sign up to this new service or you install this new software, you'll be essentially a 21st century business. But the hard part I've noticed from, from spending a lot of time looking at these leaders and organizations is not the technology itself. It's being able to change yourself, the way you approach things, The way you collaborate with other people, the way you approach decision making. So you can, you know, you can completely upgrade your enterprise technology stack and it won't actually change anything in the way you do things unless you make that personal. Sure.
1: No, that makes total sense. One of the investments we've made is into, for example, the ability to video interview globally, which obviously opens up doors for us and changes the way that we currently do things. It always used to be based on a telephone interview model. Now we can meet people anywhere in the world. And it's, um, I guess that's one example of where we're investing, but it's uh, it's exciting as well. But you're right; you get peddled lots of wares and lots of technology on a regular basis as a bit as an SME business owner, and uh, sometimes it's hard to sort out the weed from the chaff. But um, it's exciting. It's something that I, you know, this is why this podcast is so interesting for me personally, and hopefully it is for the listeners as well. So look, you've, you've written more than one book. How did you prepare for this particular book on the algorithmic age? What kind of research did you have to perform? Well.
2: Like you, I've I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different leaders. So in in the last, uh, really the last five years, I've interviewed hundreds of leaders and organizations. And I, I just tried to look very broadly both at big established companies as well as startups, uh, people working on AI technology. And I, I tried to really get to the heart of how jobs and cognition and decision-making was changing. Um as opposed to just the underlying technologies, uh, and I tried to look broader than just the US. I, want, I looked into China, and Japan, uh, really to get a very wide scope how we as a human civilization globally uh, is starting to reinvent ourselves in this. Were there any range. big
1: businesses in the UK that you would form part of your research? Well, yeah, there's a, there's, a,
2: there's some really uh, wonderful case studies because the AI uh, because the UK is really becoming a hotbed for AI innovation. Um, a number of people I spoke to were, for example, uh, Hugh Harvey, uh, who is a, a radiologist, um, and you know th- that was interesting to me because radiology is often cited, like payroll, as a uh, as a career that will completely disappear uh, with AI. But this was somebody who had actually embraced technology and was actively using it to reinvent the role. Uh, and his view, which was fascinating in the book, was that. Actually, you know, machine learning and automation will make the job of being a radiologist far more interesting in the future because it will take away the stuff that, quite frankly, he never <laughs> wanted to do in the first place. And another fascinating story is uh, from uh, Babylon Health, which is one of the world's leading AI health companies. And I interviewed the founder Ali Pazar a number of times, uh, who uh, has an amazing story uh, because he he was a uh, you know he was an immigrant that fleed from the Iranian Revolution um came to england at uh, age 16 knew no one didn't speak any english managed to teach himself english finish school get a phd uh, a job as an investment banker in a, in a big firm and then successfully start a number of health that's
1: well last couple of questions just to finish off on this section but do you think that i'm assuming i already know the answer here but i just want to get your take on it do you think it's ever too late for an older in inverted commas, analog company to make the changes necessary to succeed in the algorithmic age? No, it's never too late. In fact, they, they have an advantage
2: that many new players don't, which is that they have often access to data, um, which is the fuel that these algorithms feed on. Um, but there is, a, there is a penalty for acting too late in that, you know, with, with, with some technologies, you're better off waiting until they're mature so you don't have to spend the money on development. But when it comes to AI... All that time that you have to train your own algorithms on your own data is actually where you start to embed your IP into your platforms, and 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 that is exactly what you don't want to wait for your competitors sure. to get better at um, by simply sitting on the sidelines. Obviously,
1: right now we've got twenty twenty around the corner. If I asked you, and maybe maybe I'm picking a period that's just too far ahead, but let's say if I asked you to think what life might look like in twenty thirty, what would you say?
2: Well, in many ways, 2030 will look very similar to 2020 in that the physical infrastructure of the world won't be dramatically different. Yeah, I mean, there'll, there'll be some more self-driving cars and there'll be irritating drones in the sky. Uh, we'll still be staring at screens and, you know, we may be walking around with augmented reality glasses just to make things a little bit more irritating <laughs> for everybody else. But the, the, the big difference will be experiences because if you look at the trend, already today the way we watch television listen to music the way we communicate it's shaped with data um, no one has the same Netflix recommendations but in the very near future and and it's certainly by 2030 we will live in a world of algorithmic experiences the way we whether it's financial services or retail or entertainment every experience we have will be utterly hyper individualized just for us and will be anticipatory uh, goods will arrive at our house without without us even ordering them because algorithms have predicted we would need those things um, you know uh, music will start um, uh, you know that's completely appropriate to what we would actually have wanted at that point of time and and we would just we won't see this as uncanny or freaky. we would actually just come to expect it and kind of be shocked when the entire universe isn't orchestrated to our whim.
1: I wasn't expecting that that to be your answer, but it, it ties in quite nicely. So we've got a, a marketing recruitment division here. I did an article recently on how digital marketing has changed in what we call now the new virtual experience economy. I think experience economy was coined by um B. Joseph Pine, the second James Gilmore, in an article a while ago. But yeah. actually, the phenomenon of the, the new experience economy in the digital age is something that's growing exponentially at the moment, with many brands trying to come up with a new experience that... uh that brings in a, a new consumer base or increased consumers to the, to their product or, or service and it's um you mentioned then about the experience economy or as you say working around in aug- augmented reality glasses it's something that it's so bespoke and it's so different that it gets i guess some of the what's the word i'm looking for the uh, innate um excited endorphins running in, in inside inside all of us it makes us excited again it gets the adrenaline running and, and it keeps us engaged for a little bit longer, but it's more specific. And it's uh, it's quite exciting. As it's not all negative. I think some of the experience economy ideas from a marketing perspective have been been really great. We're going to quickly
0: jump into the L&D vaults. Opening the L&D vault. Very
1: quick, short answers from yourself, Mike, if we may. What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone working as a leader in charge of data, such as apparel manager or HR manager right now?
2: Uh, I would would have two questions that that they would want to answer. First is, um, are we currently collecting or categorizing the data in a way that will allow us to leverage AI in the near future in a productive way? And the second is, can I be confident that the data that I'm collecting is not biased, prejudiced, or skewed in some way, which could lead to problems down the track?
1: With the benefit of hindsight, what would be the one career decision you would change? (laughs)
2: Uh, maybe i wouldn't have spent so long trying to study uh, at at university and and more time out in the market uh, where i think the real learning
1: happens brilliant fantastic if we're sitting here a year from now celebrating what a great year it's been for you what would you have hoped to have achieved an outline for another book fantastic (laughs) have you got any ideas or anything uh, already planning on that side Uh, i have have a few ideas and i absolutely want to tell you (laughs) Okay, no worries at all. It was worth a try. What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone embarking on a new career in a data-driven career, such as payroll or human resources?
2: You know, the most successful people in the future were people who combine disparate fields and disciplines to great effect. So I would be simultaneously studying AI, probability, statistics, um, you know, machine learning, as well as talent, psychology, development, Uh, and looking for ways to cross those two disciplines.
1: Perfect. And last question, before we ask the superpower question right at the end of this podcast, how can we continue to stay smart when the machines around us are smarter than we are?
2: Well, read my book. That would definitely be a good start. And (laughs) if you're dealing with the machine, know where the off switch is. Um, That certainly will put you, that will definitely (laughs) put you far in advance, I think.
1: It was definitely a leading question to exactly the answer. I was hoping you would give fantastic. And I'll obviously put a number of links to your book and also to your Between Worlds podcast in the episode notes for this uh, for this podcast episode as well. So last question to, to finish off the podcast, Mike, if you will. If you could be given any superpower, what would it be and why?
2: I'd really like to live forever uh, because I just, I'm just i so excited about some of the things that are going to be happening in the near future. I just It would just be a tragedy to have to die before I see all the fun stuff.
1: Oh, that's fantastic well listen i have to say it's been a huge pleasure i've learned loads i've taken copious amounts of notes here just for my own learning and I, I certainly advise anyone who's listened to this podcast if you've missed any of it play it again put it on repeat i think there's really loads of information to take away a huge thanks to having such an established futurist such as mike to join me on this podcast i can only express my gratitude for joining me today i know you've got to rush so i will make sure that all of the notes um and all of the links to your previous book, your new book, and your podcast, including the episode notes. So please take a look at that. Just say a huge um, thanks for, for joining me today on this, on this podcast.
2: It's been a great pleasure. And uh, please follow me on uh, Twitter uh, at uh, Mike Walsh or on Instagram. That'd be great as well.
1: Perfect. I'll make sure those links are also available in the episode notes. Thanks ever so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the L&D Podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast has been sponsored by Think Learning. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please review it, share it and subscribe so you never miss a future episode.